This episode is brought to you by Vimeo, home to the world's best filmmakers. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I am Emily Booter. And I'm John Fusco. It's February 9th, 2017, and on this week's show, how the Super Bowl is an unlikely launchpad for indie filmmakers. Or is it? Plus, award season marches on, we say goodbye to a gear innovator, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. As always, we're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Some of you might have taken a break from production to watch the Super Bowl. It's the biggest game of the year in American football. It went down this past Sunday, if you don't know. You might be wondering what in the world this event would have to do with indie film. After all, it's also one of the most corporate events of the year, with Ad Age magazine reporting last month that there's been $4.5 billion spent on airing ads over the game's first 50 years. That's just airing them, not even making them. According to the same article, this year's ad spending totaled a record $377 million, which is more than was spent on the Super Bowl ads in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s combined just this year. But it's exactly these commercials that have the filmmaker tie-ins. I mean, somebody has to make them. This year, the biggest name directors to helm a spot were the Coen brothers, who created an Easy Rider-inspired ad for Mercedes-Benz, featuring the original Easy Rider himself, Peter Fonda, who wrote, produced, and starred in the 1969 film. More interesting for us is that the year's most talked-about ad was shot by someone firmly in the indie camp, DP Jody Lee Lipes, who became known for shooting indie hits like Lena Dunham's Tiny Furniture and Sean Durkin's Martha Marcy May Marlene, say that 10 times fast, and most recently he shot the Oscar-nominated Manchester by the Sea, which you really liked the look of, right, Emily? Yeah, I also love the look of Martha Marcy May Marlene. Yeah, he's a talented guy and and Brooklyn-based. Anyway, the Super Bowl commercial he shot for Budweiser, titled Born the Hard Way, tells the story of Budweiser founder Adolphus Bush and how he overcame the hostility he faced when he first arrived in the U.S. as a German immigrant to become one of our most successful businessmen. The ad was perceived by some as a pro-immigration statement and therefore somewhat of a dig on Donald Trump's anti-immigration stances, though the company denies that claim, and clearly the ad would have been planned and shot long before Trump's foreign travel ban was put into place. So the ad, which Leipz shot on Alexa, which, you know, we hear again and again is a favorite among NDDPs, was almost like a short film with no explicit branding until the end. He told IndieWire, we had a lot of freedom in this spot to use natural light the way we wanted to and keep it dirty and gritty. And though the ad's content was controversial, It could also be considered a success. By Monday, it was the most watched Super Bowl ad online. So then the question is, is the Super Bowl a great platform or a launchpad for indie shooters and directors? Not a launchpad. I would say more of like a place for them to come and show their chops after they have launched, after they've blasted off. Well, I think John has some thoughts on the matter. I do have a few thoughts. Um... If you listen to a podcast that we put out a few weeks ago uh, with Jonathan Milo and Carrie Murnian, who directed Bushwick and Cooties, they actually got their start by directing a commercial for Nike. And Nike kind of set that up as a contest for amateur filmmakers. So basically, they pitched their idea to Nike, and then uh, along with a bunch of other directors. And then the directors that won were given $20,000 to shoot a short film 
based on a certain topic that Nike gave them, which Nike would later use for commercials. And I think this is like a really interesting model for companies to sort of take on commercial advertising. I think that if more companies did it this way, it would be we would we would see a lot more interesting commercials out there, even for Super Bowls. I mean, we we had a discussion about I thought that the Super Bowl uh, commercials were kind of, were kind of weak this year, and they've been kind of getting progressively more weak. And I just meant that in the sense of like sort of like unique fun commercials that stood out for I guess ways that don't have to do with politics but more just like, like filmmaking vision. yeah vision and visual aesthetics and humor or just like strangeness in general those are my favorite commercials during the Super Bowl and yeah I mean I I would jump in and say that like I, as someone who watches the Super Bowl strictly for the commercials I thought the the maybe the innovation of the commercials I would agree with you like wasn't so off the charts this year but the craftsmanship in my view was so much higher on the whole like they weren't all these like women in bikinis on like straddling cars and eating hamburgers there was some like real craft you know again like this Budweiser ad was like a short film yeah no totally and you know those are companies that are taking already like established DPs and directors and really trusting them to go their own way with it and that's a equally viable option. Um, there was another commercial directed by Peter Berg where they went to like a Poland army base and they like had a VR experience for the troops there and it was shot really well. But like I couldn't help but feel a little bit manipulated that I was like watching like a military base in Poland like after the Super Bowl happened, that's the Super Bowl is this great like American pastime and I just felt a little bit manipulated. There was a lot of manipulation this year, I felt like, with the commercials. And that's Yeah. I mean um, I also would argue that commercials in general are the ultimate form of manipulation. Yeah, sure. Their um, whole point is to manipulate you into doing something. Right. You know, taking the Budweiser example, like Budweiser manipulates you into drinking beer in that sense. They don't really need to take a stance on immigration and like I you know I appreciate it for sure like I'm totally no ban no wall but like I do see where people are coming from that like maybe this isn't the best forum for uh, a company to be like making these statements like I don't dude know. you're a beer stay out of politics yeah I don't know it's it's just such a it's such it's such a politically heavy time that it's always nice to like have a break from that and the Super Bowl wasn't really a break from that in that sense yeah well anyway to get back to this idea of like so yeah whether, you know the contests and the contest and then also just sort of like as far as like unique visions go Doritos I don't know if any of our listeners are familiar with their sort of campaign but they've been doing this for 10 years now this sort of uh, similar to what Nike did with Milo and Mernian except they provide far less <laughs> uh, financial support which I'll get into so on that note uh, I read an article earlier this week, uh, yesterday, that The Verge put out reporting on Doritos' Super Bowl tradition of exploiting filmmakers. Basically, the subject line for the whole article was that in its decade-long run, what began as a supposed opportunity for aspirational filmmakers has become a cheap and tacky campaign that exploits creators of free labor and promotion. Their campaign started back in 2006, where they solicited amateur filmmakers to produce ads on spec, which here can be translated as without pay. If you're not familiar with the rules of the campaign, it's kind of similar to the Nike thing. Doritos selects five videos from over a thousand submissions. Anyone can submit a video. And then they asked website visitors to vote for which ad would air during the Super Bowl. Instead of providing financial support for the short or for the commercial, however, they awarded the five creators $10,000 and a trip to Detroit where they attended a Super Bowl party, but not the actual football game. 
If you didn't see that first round of commercials, then you've definitely seen them since. It was so successful that they've been doing the same thing ever since, and there's kind of like a hype machine that trails it for like months before the Super Bowl now. The majority of the entrants never actually received pay for creating Doritos ads, but there was a time when the campaign appeared to serve its function as an industry door opener for people living hundreds of miles from New York and Los Angeles. Doritos eventually evolved the promotion, however, to be something more in the line of free advertising and less in the line of celebrating filmmakers' work. Voting sort of shifted to take place of the filmmaking itself. So they they put a higher emphasis on users voting and then sharing the videos on social media and then not paying the people who actually made the ads that were already on the platform but weren't the ads that got chosen so that's a lot of free advertising. Well, yeah. I mean, the article also pointed out that all the ads that are entered into the contest, even if they're not chosen, are then on YouTube in perpetuity advertising the product. Yeah, they're still they're still up and they, they're still circulating just like regular ads, but they're not being paid for them. And they're not really even a viable means of exposure anymore. You know, that's interesting because internally we've had a few discussions about the um, a similar thing going on with filmmaking contests in general um, where, you know, there will be a contest for a short film and then it will play everywhere and nobody gets royalties um, and the filmmaker doesn't retain ownership over their work. So, like, when we research these grants and contests, we, we always look into, especially Liz looks into the ownership rights. Um, and I think it's a similar it's a similar problem. Yeah, totally. And I mean, a lot of the Doritos commercial, like the, the filmmakers are kind of just like kids trying to like, you know, have some fun and make a name for themselves. And they don't have any idea about like what they're actually giving Doritos, which is like pretty unique, special commercials that like are voices that you wouldn't really hear from in a natural commercial setting. So it's, it's a really interesting, um, thing that's evolved too because they've they've sort of realized that and are taking advantage of it in that sense and what's more it seems like the amateur filmmakers that you know were being promised a spot now have to take on already established industry vets who are looking to transition to director so for example last year's winner scott zbielski is an executive producer on comedy central's tosh point oh so he's an executive producer, and he's worked there since he was 2009, and he beat over 4,900 other entrants, most of whom, it's safe to assume, have never been executive producers on popular cable TV shows. Yeah, he's not like some scrappy upstart DIY filmmaker, right. for sure. And that's what the contest was like originally supposed to represent, and I think that it somehow still has that sort of context, but it's... Uh, I mean, the commercials are also suffering for it. The one commercial that Doritos put out this year was a, I don't know if any of you saw it, but it was a a dog commercial. There was like dogs looking to trying to get into a grocery market to Did get Emily a pack of Doritos. Oh, I wish I had. I have that dream basically every night though. Dog, dogs and <laughs> dogs Doritos. Dogs and Doritos? <laughs> yeah. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, I think I think to Emily's point, the takeaway for you all, for, for us all, indie filmmakers in this in this whole thing is that for any of these kind of contests, really make sure you look at the rules and regulations, find out who's going to own the work that you make and how it's going to be used. And if you feel comfortable with that and you think it could advance your career in some way, that's great. You know, sometimes it's good just to have a framework to make something in that sort of forces you to make something. And especially if you're interested in commercial directing, 
this is a great gateway, whether or not it's a gateway to, you know, getting a financier for your short film, that feels much more highly questionable. So leading up to the Super Bowl of movies, which is, of course, the Oscars later this month, we have yet more cinema awards to report. The DGA, the Directors Guild of America, named 2016's Best Directors on Sunday, with the top awards going to Damien Chazelle, who nabbed Outstanding Directorial Achievement in a Feature Film for La La Land, and Garth Davis, who got Outstanding Directorial Achievement of a First-Time Feature Film Director for Lion. It was yet another instance where Damien Chazelle beat out Barry Jenkins of Moonlight, which, the more I've thought about it, the more surprising I've found it. I mean, again, as I've said on past shows, Hollywood's clearly in love with itself, but La La Land, in a way, feels more like a feat of producing and art direction with all the different moving parts. Whereas in Moonlight, Jenkins had to coax these incredible nuanced performances out of his cast, some of whom had very little on-screen experience. So when it's my turn to vote, I would go with the, the actor's director, personally. Uh, but the awards perhaps closest to our readers' hearts also happened this past weekend, the American Society of Cinematographers Awards, which honor... You guessed it, Outstanding Achievements in Cinematography. For the first time ever, the President's Award, which honors a member's contribution to the next generation of DPs, went to a woman, namely Nancy Schreiber, known for the celluloid closet and with more than 100 credits to her name. The industry still has a ways to go, though. Schreiber is only the second woman ever to receive an ASC award in any category. Hashtag cameras so male. Our writer, V. Renee, covered the event and pointed out that perhaps the most exciting DP to win in one of the TV categories was Todd Campbell for his inventive composition and framing work in Mr. Robot. The top ASC award for theatrical release went to Lion DP Greg Frazier, who Emily interviewed earlier this year. Yes, I did. And he's an incredibly nice guy. We spoke about how he he discovered and fell in love with the digital Sputnik LED lights, which he used to light Lion and then went on to use on his next project, an obscure little indie film called Star Wars Rogue One. (laughs) But he ultimately won this award for Lion, which he shot half in India and half in Australia. And for one of the most difficult scenes in the film, in which a little boy gets lost in an extremely chaotic and crowded uh, Indian train station, Frazier built a series of boxes on a moving rickshaw. In our interview, he said, quote, We put a camera in there and cut a little hole out, a bit like candid camera. I could radio and say to the gaffer who was writing it, hey, take me over to the boy now. And I could get on a lens and be right next to him, but literally nobody would see the camera, end quote. And this is important because in that that very poor part of India, like when you bring out a piece of expensive equipment, a lot of people are going to want to look at it and, you know, it attracts a lot of attention and they wanted to be under the radar. So they basically had to hide the camera. What a cool story. Speaking of cinematographers, several months ago we did a post about how cinematographers and photographers also double as inventors a lot of the time. We know that Garrett Brown, for example, invented the Steadicam out of necessity from his own shoots. The film world lost one of those inventive souls this week when Lino Manfrotto passed away at age 80 this past Sunday. Manfrotto started out as a photojournalist, tinkering with stands and booms in his garage in Italy. He designed his first tripod in 1976 with mechanical engineer Gilberto Botoccio, and the Manfrotto Company was born. Today, I don't know an indie filmmaker that doesn't have a Manfrotto tripod in their kit. It's the only brand I've ever bought, and I'm not alone. An Italian newspaper reported this week that Manfrotto today has two manufacturing plants and nine branches around the world, 735 employees, double-digit annual growth still, a 95% export rate, and a 7% share in the global camera bag market, 
and a 30% share of the global tripod market. That is so impressive. (laughs) It's amazing. Again, garage, you know? Anyway, rest in pace, Mr. Manfrotto, and thank you for your contribution to our industry. And now for some gear news, here's tech writer Charles Hain. Gear news. This week has been all about lenses. It's been a crazy week for lenses. Um, like, we kicked off with a relatively small, normal amount of news, which is that Rokinon has finished filling out their Zine line of primes with a 20mm T19, which is like a very useful wide lens, and in a normal week would be great news. But instead, Snyder and Cook came out with much weirder lenses, and that is actually the story of the week. I think what's happening is there's so many great cinema primes now that people have to get weird to get any attention. So we're starting to see more interesting sets of cinema lenses. First out of the gate is Snyder, who has released a full set of primes with tilt shift focus built in. Before now, if you wanted to tilt your depth of field, you needed to use a lower quality lens like a lens baby or rent a really high quality expensive accessory like the cinema products. But with these lenses, tilt is built right in. And even better, it's built into a focus ring with 0.8 pitch, so you can use a normal fall of focus to tilt your depth of field. What's really nice is these intercut totally seamlessly with the rest of the Snyder Xenon FF range. So if you already have a set of Snyders and you need a second set for your B camera, maybe your second set will be tilt shift. If you're doing like a four camera show, maybe one of the sets you rent will be tilt shift. Um, so it's nice that they intercut with the rest of the line, which are a popular line of glass, and it's really cool that it is built in natively and doesn't even slow the lenses down. Not to be left out, uh, Cook is now offering uncoated versions of their full-size S4 primes. They've had uncoated S4 minis available for a while, but the S4 minis have never been that popular, and the full-size S4s are, like, industry-dominating in their personality. Uh, Lenses have been coated since around World War II, the Varicote, uh, developed at Caltech was one of the first popular lens coating technologies. And a lens coat lets you let more light into the lens, so it makes the lens faster because it reflects less light. It can control flare. Stripping the coating off slows the lens down. The cooks slow down from a T2 to a T2.2 and uh, gives you a softer, more flary, more veily vintage look. And uh, it's now available for the entire Cook S4 range. Um, This isn't a swap you're going to want to do at home. You should go to your Cook dealer, have them do the swap. They'll recalibrate the focus. And uh, I'd be on the lookout. I think you're going to start seeing a lot of uncoated S4 sets available in your favorite rental house soon. And Charles, we're going to ask you to stick around after the break to help answer this week's Ask No Film School question. You're putting videos out into the world, and chances are you need to collaborate to bring those videos to life. Fortunately, Vimeo has all new video review tools. Here's how they work. When you upload a rough cut to Vimeo, it gets its own private review page. You can share the page with as many people as you need, and you can leave time-coded notes anywhere on any frame of the video. Your feedback stays organized and secure. No more annoying email threads, no more confusing comments. Instead, everything you need to upload, review, and share videos all in one place. Vimeo. To learn about more features, visit join.vimeo.com slash review. So I loved this week's Ask No Film School question. Olivia Brown wrote to ask, how do you fake a film being one continuous shot? In other words, how do you make a film look like one long, seamless take? So what do you have to say to Olivia, Charles? Well, Olivia, that is a great question. Since it lets us focus on something you should be thinking about anyway, which is like the vital nature of testing. So, Olivia, what you're talking about is sometimes called an invisible cut, 
where you plan out your coverage such that the edits are never noticed by an audience. The first great film you should really look at when you're trying to master the invisible cut is Rope by Alfred Hitchcock, which attempts to be one long entire feature film that is all one take, but Hitchcock had to cut every 10 minutes because he could only fit 10 minutes of film in his camera. Hitchcock hit his cuts with very artful staging. For instance, the camera would dolly around a scene and would smoothly go around a character's back, and during the moment when the full frame is covered by the actor, they would cut between one take and another. A new take is started, but the audience doesn't even notice. You can do the same thing not just with actors, but also with walls is a very common way to do this. You'll be following an actor, and they'll walk into another room, and you'll fill the frame with a wall, and you'll hide the cut there because walls are big, blank spaces, and it's easy to fill the frame with a wall. That is so clever. Yeah. Of course, Hitchcock had a whole, didn't have a whole set of tools that you easily have at your disposal. So first off, you're probably shooting on video, which you can run much longer than a film camera. So if you want, you could stage a full 20 to 30 minute shot that was all continuously engaging. But if you want to mix it up with a variety of different shots, you can digitally manipulate the footage to make the transition easier. So for instance, most modern films, if you have an invisible cut, you're usually punching in on the shot a little bit to fill the frame, or maybe you're darkening it or brightening it a little bit with the built-in color correction tools in your NLE to make that invisible cut even more seamless. And sometimes you're even adding a couple like three-frame cross-dissolves to make it smoother. All of these are tools are super easy to use, and they're built into Final Cut Pro X or Premiere or whatever you use. A really common technique for doing this these days is the whip pan. Uh, off the top of my head, Sexy Beast does this really well, but there are countless examples where you're doing your shot, and then the end of the shot, you like whip to the right, and then you start your next shot by whipping in from the left. And in that whip, where the footage is all blurry, you can cut the two shots together, and you can make it feel like you've whipped seamlessly from one moment in time to another or one space to another. I've also seen it where, let's say you don't have your whip on the second half of the shot. If you whip strong enough out at the first half and then you add like a little wiggle or like a little shake to the camera with uh, a plug-in. Or a shimmy. A whipping wiggle. A shimmy. The whippy wiggle. (laughs) Um, A dongle. A googly eye. Yeah, a a dongle. I don't know. That's a lot. Um, To the second half of the shot, when it lands, it feels like a whip pan even if it wasn't. But... The point remains, testing is the best way to get to know all of this. So if you're planning out a shoot and you're trying to figure out ways to make it work, don't leave it till the day of the shoot to figure it out. If you have two locations you want to try and match, go there, hopefully with your camera or maybe with the camera in your phone, and test out various techniques to see like, oh, if I fill it with this wall, will it match that wall at the other location? And play around first. This is really a technique that takes testing and practice to make work. Yeah, I'd just add in that, um, again, I keep talking about this Bushwick interview I did <laughs> a few weeks ago, but that whole thing was shot to make it look like it was one take. And uh, they said they actually shot the movie like three times in that sense. So they had like the first time where they were going through like locations to like, you know, test how they would do the one take. Uh, the second time was like a rehearsal with the actors. And the third time they actually shot the whole thing. But like they only had, I think, 18 takes in total when they were done. So it was just an entire pre like the entire thing was based off of pre planning. Um, that's how they pulled it off. And what's really crazy about what they did is they had a movie. Is that what it's called? A movie. Yeah. A movie. In that sense, it became sort of like even a choreography because they had to like pass off the entire movie unit to like different camera operators at different levels. And it's really interesting. So if you get it again, going to plug that podcast, 
listen to it if you're interested in how to pull off crazy one takes. Well, thanks for the question, Olivia, and thank you for the answer, Charles. And be sure to send your short film to us when you're done. Can't wait to see how you pull off your one take. By the way, no one sent in their bacon No film. one has sent in Not their bacon films. Not a single person. We got a shout out by Macon Blair on Twitter saying he's eagerly awaiting to see these bacon films. Are you serious? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is the coolest podcast story I've heard so far. <laughs> well, it would be a lot cooler if people would actually send me your bacon videos. I'm going to give you my email right now <laughs> on air. It's fusco at nofilmschool.com. Send me your bacon videos. If they're one take bacon videos... That's even better. That includes you, Kevin Bacon. We are waiting for you. And if anybody has a smell-o-vision bacon video, I'd be even happier about that. (laughs) And now on to some movies that are opening this week. Coming to streaming platforms this week on VOD, you can check out Hunter Gatherer, directed by Joshua Losey. The movie stars Kelly Stewart, Andre Royo, and George Sample Three, who is a really neat dude. (laughs) I wrote it here. Neat. (laughs) Uh, He's he's really cool. Uh, Very humble, down to earth dude. Uh, He has a starring role in Person to Person, which is an interview I did at Sundance, and he was a really cool guy. Met him. You can check out that interview on No Film School too. This film. Hunter Gatherer is about an unreasonably optimistic middle-aged man, which is actually the synopsis in IMDb. Uh, I don't know how unreasonably optimistic <laughs> that is, but he comes back to his stagnant neighborhood after a three-year stint in prison to try and win back his girlfriend, only to find that she and his family have done what they always wanted to do, and that is forgetting that he actually exists. Oh, that is so depressing. But I think it's a comedy. It's a dark comedy. So Micah interviewed Joshua at South by Southwest last year, and he revealed that he got into the industry first by working as an assistant on Pineapple Express. So he got to know David Gordon Green, and Green, Danny McBride, and Jody Hill ended up being executive producers on this, his first feature. And they're sort of known for their really weird, dark comedy that's not really funny, but more like, oh my God, this is so fucked up for these people sort of thing. And I'll jump in and say that's just another one of those stories that, you know, we're always trying to grind into your your all's heads here on the podcast where it's like, if you want to get your stuff made, so much of it is about getting out there and working on other people's projects. Yeah. So you can read that whole interview to find out exactly how he pulled it off on No Film School. So the next movie that is opening on Amazon Prime Instant is a very interesting story. You might remember that one of the most famous cases of identity theft ever happened in the literary world, and it actually was a voluntary case of identity theft. And I'll explain what I mean. In author the J.T. Leroy story coming to Amazon Prime Instant, director Jeff Furzig explores the literary persona of the wildly popular and very controversial author J.T. Leroy, who was actually created by a woman named Laura Albert, who invented her own backstory as a 20-year-old androgynous boy who was raised in truck stops with his prostitute mother. The craziest part is that she got her sister-in-law, Savannah Noop, to play along. Savannah appeared in place of Laura at every single public J.T. Leroy appearance for six years until a journalist uncovered the ruse. And J.T. Leroy, a.k.a. Laura Albert, said she could not have written from the raw emotion without being presented to the world by J.T. Leroy, her persona. Coming to Netflix this week is a film that is very dear to me, Clouds of Sils Maria by Olivier Assayas. And he's a pretty divisive director. Some adore this particular movie, while others find it alienating, and I personally love it. And if you're into the machinations of performance, character, and personality, you will too. 
It stars Juliette Binoche as an aging film star who has to reckon with her legacy when a young actress stars in the revival of the play that launched her career initially. Kristen Stewart plays her assistant, and they have this weird, contentious love-hate relationship that's very interesting to see play out on screen. It features some of the most exquisite cinematography in recent years, particularly of the Maloha snake phenomenon, which, if you don't know, is also known as the Clouds of Sils Maria phenomenon. Um, the movie gets its name from that. It's a serpentine formation of fog that winds its way through a dramatic mountainscape in Switzerland. So, Asias is also releasing his next film, Personal Shopper, which also stars Kristen Stewart in March. And that's another divisive one. It got booed in Cannes in the screening that I was at, um, which I think was the first screening ever, though some thought it was a masterpiece. I land somewhere in between. Finally, coming out in theaters and same day being released on iTunes is Speed Sisters. That'll be out February 10th. It's directed by Amber Faris, and it's a doc about the Speed Sisters, the first all-female race car driving team in the Middle East, specifically in the Palestinian West Bank. The film premiered at Hot Docs in 2015, and I saw it at Doc NYC later that year. Although the entire movie is underscored by one of the world's most entrenched political battles, it's actually a really entertaining story about some pretty badass women who are bucking convention in not only a male-dominated field of race car driving, but also the male-dominated Palestinian society at large. And now on to some upcoming deadlines and events for this week. The CAM Documentary Fund has a deadline on February 16th. This is the Center for Asian American Media, and it awards between $15,000 and $50,000 for public television-appropriate programs. So partnering with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, while it still exists, CAM provides production funding to independent producers for national public television. Documentaries are eligible for production or post-production funding, and they must be intended for public television broadcast. Do you know if you have to be an Asian American director or producer to win this, or only that the film has to have Asian American content? I would assume so, but then again, a lot of these grants, anyone on the crew, if they're Asian American or if it deals with Asian American subjects, um, I'd assume that those are probably grant-worthy as well. And even more exciting, entries open for Real Fear, a new sort of competition that might actually turn into like some sort of reality TV show because it's being produced by Project Greenlight. And that's opening on February 13th. So Project Greenlight Digital Studios is doing this new contest in collaboration with the renowned horror writer and filmmaker Clive Barker, who's made such classics as Hellraiser and Nightbreed. This contest is backed by Shudder, which is a horror streaming service from AMC Networks that's uh, really seeming to be taking off this year, and Adaptive Studios, which is the company behind Project Greenlight. So the way the project works is that you submit your pitch, and then 10 semifinalists are chosen from those pitches. The public, along with a panel of judges, will vote on the semifinalist pitches. Five finalists receive money to shoot a scene from their horror script, and then the winner of the contest receives a $300,000 budget for their complete feature film, with Clive Barker signing on as executive producer to guide the winner along the way. It's a pretty awesome contest. This is such an awesome potential opportunity. I totally agree. But to the point of our conversation much earlier in the show, this is one of those ones where if you're thinking about entering, I encourage you to look at the rules and regulations very, very carefully, particularly because in some contests like this, if the contest sponsors like Project Greenlight, if part of the deal is that they'll come on and produce the film, there sometimes are regulations or clauses in there that say if they decide to take your film, they don't have to keep you on as director. And that's no good for you. So definitely read carefully. 
And in terms of festival deadlines, we've got the 2017 Tribeca Snapchat shorts on Friday. Ooh, drama. That means Snapchat took over where Vine left off. Remember, Vine used to do these uh, Tribeca contests. Well, I don't know. I, they So Snapchat started this last year for uh, Tribeca. So probably before that it was Vine, yeah. Yeah, interestingly, this is not a contest anymore. It's it's a, an official category. So if you get in, you will screen as part of the festival, which is pretty awesome. Um, also very legitimizing for the Snapchat medium. The official rules state that participating filmmakers must use Snapchat to create a vertical video that runs for 120 seconds or less. Any content that's explicitly violent, profane, or disrespectful will be automatically disqualified. Keep it PG, people. PG. Uh, you got to save it as an MP4 file, at which point it will be reviewed by Tribeca's panel of judges. And the festival programmers will choose up to 10 finalists who will then all receive a badge to, to attend the festival, just like every Tribeca filmmaker does. And it's free to enter. Yeah. And uh, just in case you missed that deadline, it is February 17th. Um, it's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird thing. But if you have Snapchat, it seems like it's also very easy because you can just make literally make a story and then just save that story and send it in. And it literally will only take 120 seconds to make. So might as well do it. I mean, it's free to enter. Um, in addition, the Art of Brooklyn Film Festival has a deadline on Friday, February 17th. This festival was founded in 2011 and is the only international independent festival in the world devoted to Brooklyn's vibrant film and media scene. So like the CAM Documentary Fund, this is a festival that accepts films from all over, but only if they're connected to Brooklyn in some way. So that means it could be you know, part of the cast and crew is from Brooklyn. Uh, the production could have taken place in Brooklyn. And, you know, the content could be about Brooklyn. It just has to be Brooklyn. They also claim to be the only indie film festival to have their own video on demand streaming platform. We're not sure about that, but it's called Brooklyn On Demand and it has over 10,000 subscribers. So if your short gets picked, you're automatically thrown into that pool of content. And speaking of cool film festivals, the Berlin Film Festival, otherwise known as the Berlinale, is going on starting today. It's February 9th to the 18th. It's one of Europe's most important festivals, and it's huge, with 400 films in the lineup. As a point of reference, that's about twice as many as Play at Sundance. Berlinale also has a big European film market and international co-production market. So we'll be bringing you interviews with a few of the festival filmmakers. Keep an eye out on nofilmschool.com. Also, coming up this week is Valentine's Day. So, shout out to all of our booze and future booze. Future booze. <laughs> but no past booze. Yeah, no, yeah, past no definitely booze. not the best Boo booze. To you. <laughs> um, and I want to know, in honor of Valentine's Day, what everyone's favorite love story on film is. Me? <laughs> I'm looking at you, John. Yep. I'll start because I love Valentine's Day. I was originally going to choose Eraserhead, but I haven't <laughs> seen it in a while. I didn't, all I really remember is that, you know, uh, it's about a man who kind of is forced into raising a snake baby. So I decided not to talk about that one. And instead, I'll talk about one that I just saw and that we've talked about on this podcast before. Uh, because it was coming to Amazon Prime, and I watched it on Amazon Prime, and that is Before Sunrise by Richard Linklater, <clears throat> which was also uh, your favorite movie, Charles, or your favorite romance movie, if I remember. Well, I I would actually say Before Midnight, the third one oh, yeah? of the three, would be my favorite. That's the only one that's not available for free on streaming services, so I haven't seen it yet. Oh, interesting. So 
that's yeah. So I'm a before sunrise guy. You're a before midnight guy. But yeah. I just really like it because personally, it's like wow, that's a fantasy come true. Meeting a French girl on a train, uh, and you know, immediately hitting it off, and then going and exploring a place together and having like a real genuine connection. So, um, yeah, genuine. Oh la la. Yeah, pony. <laughs> uh. Yeah. I would have. I was actually going to put that, but then since you'd already put that, I'm going to go with a TV show and say Catastrophe. What? I. It's so romantic to me. You've seen Catastrophe, right? The BBC show. No. I don't know a thing about Never it. Heard oh, it. it's amazing. Okay. It's Sharon Hogan it. who just created Divorce with the HBO show. It's her BBC show. It's nice because it's a BBC show, so it's only like probably two hours of footage because it's like four episode seasons of 20 minutes each. But uh, she's an Irish teacher in London who has a one night stand with an American who's there in business and they have a baby and keep it. And he moves to England and it's just their romance. And like, yes, it is messy and they argue and they get lost in France without a breast pump and it's dramatic, um, which apparently is a big deal. Um, But it's just a really um, realistic and beautiful portrait of like people who care about each other a lot, but sometimes get mad. And uh, mm-hmm. it's a catastrophe. Totally worth checking out. Really amazing. Catastrophe and divorce are your Valentine's. <laughs> no, no, divorce is not. Ah. On no, well, before midnight would be my traditional cinematic. But if you're going to cover the before trilogy, I'm going to go catastrophe. But I only got the one. We'll get. You yeah. can. Ha- you can have both. Yeah. All right. I'll have both. You can have both. Happy Valentine's Day. Well, since you guys had <laughs> since you guys had both of those, I do love those movies a lot. Um, but my favorite is actually sort of along the lines of Charles's. It's um, Short Term Twelve, and it's not like a typically romantic movie in the sense that it's the the central story is not the romance. The central story is about um, a woman, a young woman who works at a um, a center for homeless teenagers and helps them kind of figure out their way in life, but. Um, one of the big part of her character development is that she has a trauma in her past that she's kind of worked to repress her entire life. And her boyfriend, future fiance in the film, um, really helps her and supports her getting through that and like coming to her own self-actualization. And it's one of the most romantic and devoted relationships I've seen in a long time. And they go through some shit together and they get through it. And it's just really inspiring. And I love it. And it made me cry. Aww. Aww. Well, like Emily and Charles, I'm going to choose a complex, gritty, realistic love story. The Princess Bride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Reiner's 1987 kind of comedy, but very touching spoof. I mean, it's full of puns and everything I love. And Andre the Giant, R.I.P. And um, I'm not sure what it says about me that, like, my, like, notion of romance was formed when I was 10 but um it's a great movie and if you haven't seen it oh man grab your guy or gal and get on the couch with the princess bride I have a a single male friend who calls that his closer movie he's like second date third date they're coming over they're watching princess bride we're closing he's sort of a d-bag but it's also really charming (laughs) oh my god we should have talked about our own closing movies that's what we talked about mine's Donnie Darko the (laughs) shining I believe that I actually made out to that movie once yeah Mm. to that movie (laughs) (laughs) in honor of in honor of Donnie Darko I kiss you now yeah (laughs) <laughs> we kiss you all, and before we let you go, we want to tee up Monday's No Film School interview podcast. 
Okay, I'll tee it up. I'm just really glad that none of us said Garden State either. I was just surprised. Anyways, Monday's podcast will be a really cool discussion that me and Oakley had with uh, like six short filmmakers from Sundance where we talked about the steps that they took in order to get their short films into Sundance. Um, It's really a great conversation and they were all really informative and I was inspired by it and I think you guys will be too. So listen to that. Very cool. Our roundtable podcasts are often the most interesting because there's so many voices included. So you can check that out on Monday. And of course, we'll be with you every Thursday for Indie Film Weekly. You can access both on the regular by subscribing to the No Film School podcast on iTunes. And of course, you can find out about everything you heard about on today's show and links to all the opportunity deadlines on the podcast post at nofilmschool.com. And... Stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. E.L. Booter. And let me just also hype up the episode a little bit more by saying the directors, uh, the projects were really cool. One of them was called Dawn of the Deaf, which is about like deaf zombie people. One of the other directors was a Native American filmmaker. And the final one did a short film about a man who lives in Africa and feeds hyenas meat out of his mouth. So really diverse voices on that podcast. I think that's the most romantic story I've heard in a while. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I'm John. You can follow me at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, John, Jim. Jim, 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 Jim. I'm just at Charles Hayne. There's no chance. That's good. You're lucky. And we're all on Twitter at No Film School. Happy Valentine's Day. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>